0: For the week of Wednesday, January 23rd, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we revisit our interview with David Ferris. He's the author of the book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. Ferris says it's time for Democrats to do what it takes to level the playing field in D.C. and across the country. That's coming up. So stay with us. You know, before we start, I will mention that today is Indivisible's National Call-In Day. It is a day of action to end the shutdown. This is day 31 of Trump's shutdown, which is, as you are well aware, the longest in American history. So as we mentioned on last week's show, uh, there's an AstroTurf group that had been paying for calls in support of Trump's wall. And Sure enough, staffers at senators' offices around the country reported that they have definitely gotten an uptick in calls in support of the wall, so it is super important to call and make sure that our voices get heard here. I am including a link to Indivisible's information about this, but it's it's pretty straightforward. Call both of our senators and tell them that we want an end to the shutdown without $1 going toward Trump's racist wall. You probably have our senators' numbers, but if not, you can call 1-844-236-2373 and they will put you through i will be posting up a link to this on the facebook washington state indivisible podcast community which by the way if you have not joined please do we'd love to have you Uh, and if you are on there let us know if you got through how the call went and all that Uh, and most importantly keep calling every day we need to until this shutdown is over okay there you go and now on with the show In 2016, more Americans voted for Hillary Clinton than for Donald Trump. More Americans voted for Democratic Senate candidates than for Republican Senate candidates. And yet, Republicans wield absolute control in 2018. They are pushing an unpopular agenda and they are defending an unpopular president, all of which has many Democrats wondering how we got here, how we can stop it, and then how we can prevent something like this from ever happening again. Political scientist David Ferris believes the answer is for Democrats to start fighting fire with fire. And he talks about that in his great book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. David Ferris, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Great to be here. So, you know, look, I was going to start by having you lay out the case for why the Democrats need to, quote unquote, fight dirty. But, uh, you know, following Trump's joint press conference with Vladimir Putin on Monday in which Trump uh, sided with Russia over American intelligence agencies. I don't I don't think I have to talk about why this is so important. Um, <laughs> you know, much of what you talk about the book is a prescriptive for when Democrats retake power. Uh, and we'll get to that. But you also say that they need to be more aggressive now. So how would you like to see Democrats be responding to what Trump did in Helsinki?
1: I mean, I, I think, we need to see a more aggressive response from from the Democrats to to violations of sort of traditions and norms and um, sort of our common understandings of of what the presidency should be. Um, I, I think you know Chuck Schumer's response to this is so. Indicative of what I think is wrong with the Democratic Party right now, Um, which is, you know, he he basically went out and said, like, you know, this is this is something Republicans need to deal with. (laughs) Um, And it's like, uh, I mean, yes, you know, uh, under normal circumstances, sure. Um, But right now, what the what the partisans, what the activists, what the supporters of the Democratic Party need um, is to see their leadership um, angry, um, outraged, engaged Um, offering solutions, you know, talking nonstop about the kind of legislation that they would pass to rein this in. Um, They should be, you know, uh, what my my big problem with with Schumer and Pelosi right now, uh, you know, but neither of whom I dislike, you know, intrinsically, is that they seem too happy. You know, like they seem like Mm. they don't seem they don't seem to share the feeling that I think so many of us have that something is that we're in a crisis, you know, Um, they seem to be operating as if, like, we're in this sort of, like, normal, you know, 1992 universe where, you know, in November maybe we'll get power back and then everything will be fine. Um, And I just don't think that that's the case.
0: Yeah, well, you know, you talk about the need to push solutions, and you say in the book that uh, even if those solutions are ultimately shot down, it's still, I guess, uh, uh, symbolically important to democratic voters, supporters to to see some sort of solution being pushed forward so that the Democrats aren't just simply seen as being, you know, obstructionist, but that they're actually proposing something, right?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'd like to hear Democrats talking about obtaining the president's tax returns. Um, You know, it's like you hear them say these things every once in a while, but I feel like there needs to be a united front. I think they need to be angrier. Um, they don't necessarily need to to mimic the president's, um, you know, grammar, but they could take a page from his book in terms of, uh, having this like sort of siren going all the time about this emergency that we're in, um, and get the leadership on the same page about what, you know, what, what would we like to see happen right now besides impeachment? You know, um, would we like to see the president's tax returns? Would we like to see legislation passed protecting, uh, the Mueller investigation, um, you know, whatever it is, I think that the the party needs to be conveying that um, to its supporters right now, because I feel like a lot of us feel adrift. Um, in other words, like democracy is sort of slipping away from us. Um, the president is corrupt. I, you know, who knows what, what the Russians have on him if they have anything? We don't know. Um, But it it feels like a very dangerous moment to me. And I I don't I don't get that sense of urgency from the leadership.
0: Yeah, it's definitely uh, not normal times right now. And I and I I hear what you're saying, absolutely connecting uh, with listeners, uh, because this is the sort of thing that I see from listeners all the time. So, yeah, you know, I want to talk about how the Democrats have ultimately wound up here because I said in the intro uh, by and large people have you know there have been majorities voting for Democrats in the presidential and Senate elections Um, as you say in the book the GOP uh, which you call an authoritarian minority party uh, gained power by quote abusing the clear spirit of the Constitution and benefiting from 200 year old design mistakes Uh, some of those design mistakes are written into the Constitution itself like uh, the rule that there can only be two Senators per state, whether the state has, say, 600,000 people or 38 million people, as is the case with uh, Wyoming versus California. But talk about a few of the ways uh, that you mention in the book uh, where the Constitution is silent uh, that the Republicans have been exploiting.
1: Well, sure. Um, I mean, the, the first and most important way that the Constitution is silent is with the voting rights. <laughs> um, so, so, Voting rights are not in the Constitution. Um, the Constitution has very little to say about them. Um, the, the, the framers of the Constitution sort of infamously left um, the, the question of who can vote in our elections to the states. Um, and that, that has allowed... Uh, a 230 year battle to rage in this country over over who, you know, how old you have to be, what kind of people can vote, um, you know, women and men, uh, minorities. I mean, you know, the, the whole history of this country is uh, sort of shot through with this, uh, with a struggle over voting rights. Um, and so, what, what Republicans have done recently, uh, since the Bush administration, um, is pass law after law in state after state. The, the, these laws are very similar. Um, that require people to have uh, IDs to vote, um, state-issued IDs. Um, And the the practical result of that has been that many millions of people around the country are are functionally disenfranchised. Um, These are people on the margins of society, uh, people who move around a lot, people who can't afford the bureaucratic costs of of an ID. Um, And so that's an instance that, you know, these laws are legal. Um, They were upheld by the Supreme Court. In fact, uh, Justice John Paul Stevens, the one of the most shocking votes I can remember <laughs> in recent Supreme Court history voted with the majority to uphold these voter ID laws. So it's, it's an example of something that's legal, um, that Republicans uh, are pursuing um, to, the, to the greatest extent that they can, even though they've been shot down by courts here and there for various things. Um, but it's uh, it's something that the Constitution allows, unfortunately, and Republicans are doing it because they know um, that the overwhelming majority of people who can't get these IDs uh, or, or do not have time are not going to. Our Democratic-leaning constituencies, um, who who would otherwise almost certainly um, vote for Democrats, at least the ones who would turn out. Um, so that's that's an example of, so that if, if the Constitution spelled out more precisely, you know, that everyone has, you know, everyone over the age of 18 who's an American citizen has the right to vote, and the state is responsible um, for, for providing the framework for that voting. In other words, the, the what, what Republicans have done, is they've interpreted voting as a, as a sort of a personal responsibility issue. <laughs> you know, um, and many of them have said it out loud. They're like, you know, if you're too lazy to vote, then, you know, too bad. Um, and if you're too lazy to get registered, you know, all this stuff, it's like it places the onus on the individual to get, to get registered. Um, when most other societies uh, on this planet, <laughs> they make it the government's responsibility, um, to, to ensure that everyone has access to the ballot.
0: Right. Well, you know, this this leads right into the strategies that you lay out in your book. Uh, and these are strategies for the next time the Democrats are in control when they have uh, the White House and both chambers of Congress. And, yeah, you talk about uh, the Voting Rights Act as being something that should get passed immediately. This seems very long overdue. Um, would it be a a simple majority vote? Uh, how would a, a Voting Rights Act look ideally? in in your mind and how would and how do how would it get passed
1: yeah i mean this is one of the things that i I love talking about with people because when when i first started researching this book you know as of like three years ago i was a i studied the middle east (laughs) Mm. so i've made a big change in my life um and i started researching this book and i you know I, i was looking into you know the voting rights act of 1965 and i assumed um that there'd be all of these procedural obstacles to passing a national piece of legislation addressing voting um and there's just not uh, the, the elections clause of the Constitution, very, very clear, it gives Congress the right to regulate um, the state's conduct of federal elections, right? So we have all these struggles going on at the state level, like, you know, try to get this voter ID law repealed, um, try to get automatic voter registration it in, in, in one state or another, all of which are great and inspirational, and people are working very hard on these things. Um, but, but one of the points of my book is that this is something that's amenable to a national solution. So the, the next time Democrats are in power, like if they have Congress and um, they have the presidency and they're willing to eliminate the filibuster, because <laughs> not even in my rose, like my rosiest scenario, do we have 60 seats in the Senate in 2021. Uh, so they're going to have to do away with the filibuster. But uh, you just pass a law um, that says these laws, you know, these voter ID laws are illegal um, that, that nationally reenfranchises every former felon in the country. Um, because, as we know, there's also millions of, of former felons who can't vote in different states. Um, and those are folks that uh, that also lean democratic. Um, you could institute a federal holiday for Election Day. You know, we, we yeah, something has been talked today. about, right? Yeah, I mean, but Bernie Sanders has talked about that. You know, so I mean, but it's it's like uh, it's very few countries that hold their elections on like just a regular working weekday um, and don't make any accommodations for people. Um, so that's something that's also you could just kind of wipe that away with a piece of legislation. So um, these are these are all I think really important processes that would get more people to vote. Um, we have very, very low, low voter turnout by national I mean international standards. Um, and the people that don't turn out, generally speaking, what we know in political science is that they're, they're people that would support Democrats. Yeah, you know, not, not all of them. Well <laughs> uh, there would be a split obviously, but but they would you know they would produce more democratic votes than, than we would lose to the other side if more people turned out.
0: Yeah. Well, so, okay, So you touched on something that I was going to uh, bring up uh, earlier, which is eliminating the filibuster. Um, And yet it's something that Mitch McConnell has threatened to do for quite some time. Uh, But I think you uh, laid out the reasons why the Democrats should go ahead and and pull the trigger on that. So that the Voting Rights Act. Uh, And then let's talk about the Senate uh, that occupies uh, a pretty substantial chapter in your book. Um, The Senate is tilted for the GOP for reasons that I mentioned earlier. Uh, One of the ways that you say the Democrats could shift power. Uh, shift the balance of power uh, is by declaring statehood for both DC and Puerto Rico. So let's start there. How would that work procedurally? Uh, again, would that be a simple majority vote to make that happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, bringing new states into the union—it's a pretty simple process according to the Constitution. Um, you know, it's it, we need an act of Congress, and then we need the bill signed by the president, and then you have new states. Um, traditionally, in the past, um, there's this so, there's the so-called Tennessee plan. Um, where the state sort of uh, organizes itself into a into a territory, uh, and then demands statehood from the government itself, uh, because in the, in the case of Tennessee, the, the federal government was reluctant to offer statehood to um, to the Tennesseans, and so they they did this thing where they elected the, they elected senators, they elected uh, members of the House, and they just sort of just dared Congress to stop them. Um, and that is kind of what DC has done. So uh, DC has these. Two, I don't know if you know this. DC has these shadow senators who yes. are who are elected by the by the people of DC, who have no actual power. But they, right,
0: they have a member of Congress who can't vote uh, as well. Right. right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Eleanor Holmes Norton um, is a is a non-voting member of Congress uh, of the House. So there's there's nothing standing in the way of of statehood. I think, according to sort of contemporary understandings of how democracy should work, um, we would obviously want the consent of the people in these territories to make them into a state, uh, which we very very clearly have um, in D.C., which passed a uh, statehood referendum overwhelmingly in 2016.
0: Puerto Rico is um, a different story. Yeah, and you talk Puerto about Puerto Rico is a little bit of a
1: different story. Yeah, we had a referendum there. Not we, <laughs> they had a referendum there last year, um, in which statehood w- was the overwhelming choice. Um, but it was boy- the, the referendum was boycotted by a lot of people um, because it's it's kind of a long story. But there, there's multiple no options for what Puerto Rico could do. Um, one of which is the status quo. There's like an enhanced status quo. There's independence, and then there's statehood. Um, and because there's basically four options, it makes it very hard to produce a majority for anything. Um, and the, the uh, and the independence supporters sat out this referendum. You know, they boycotted it. So ideally, we would I think we would need another referendum in Puerto Rico um, in 2020 or 2021 in order to do this. Uh, if I, if I could sort of give my advice about how that should happen, it would be ranked choice voting. Um, because that would, that would produce a majority for something, right? So if your first choice is a dependence, um, uh, and that doesn't make it, then you get, then your ballot gets redistributed to your second, second choice, which might be the status quo, or it might be statehood, but at least, um, we would know what you know, which of these options has at least the secondary support of the majority of of the the Puerto Rican people.
0: Yeah. And you talk about ranked choice voting as being a curative uh, for redistributing the balance of power in the house as well, which I want to get to in a second. Um, You know, you also talk about splitting up California. Uh, That's a little bit heavier of a lift. There's a a ballot initiative in the state right now that would uh, separate it into uh, three states. That's not what you talk about in the book. Um, But again, Is this something that would absolutely have to happen at the state level or is this something that could happen or even be assisted by uh, people at the federal
1: level? So in this case, it's a little bit different than DC and Puerto Rico. So because the the so my idea is to split California into seven pieces. Oh, and uh, I and because, I should actually
0: just mention the reason yeah. why you talk about doing that is because it's understood that the senators who would come from these new states would most likely be Democrats, and that would potentially be a bulwark against the structural advantage that Republicans have in the Senate.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's probably thirty or thirty-one Republican-leaning states and twenty or twenty-one. Uh, Democratic winning states, meaning, you know, in a neutral partisan environment, Democrats are going to lose the Senate more often than they win it, which is a real problem in terms of Democratic theory, because if you go, I went back all the way to 1992, and I added up all the votes. And since 1992, Democrats have outscored Republicans in the Senate by 30 million votes. Um, and yet Republicans have controlled the chamber, um, almost that entire time, which is, you know, it's not great from the perspective of sort of like, our representatives should represent what the people want, and they don't because of the structure of the Senate. And so, the, so the, the gimmick of the book is like, you know, you can't amend your way out of this because, the, because equal representation is written into the Constitution in, in a way that you can't get away from unless you literally blow up the entire document. So we just need more states, right? I call it the 58-state solution, um, D.C., Puerto Rico, and then six additional Californias. Um, so I drew, I drew the boundaries in a way that, that Hillary Clinton would have won all seven of these states overwhelmingly. Um, and that's because California continues to trend blue. I mean, even Orange County, which had not gone for a Democrat since FDR— Um, voted for Hillary Clinton. So I'm fairly certain that all of these states would either be solidly Democratic or lean Democratic in a kind of Virginia way. And Uh, and are you
0: assuming then that because California is controlled by Democrats, that they would be amenable to splitting up the state in a a similar way, as as you propose?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can assume that. (laughs) I think this is something that uh, people really would need to be convinced of, because it would involve cost, it would involve Logistical challenges like splitting up university systems and water sharing agreements and building a bunch of new state capitals, Um, and so I think that I think the default sort of assumption in California is that California's size um, gives it gives it influence in our politics that that it might not have if it was split up, Um, and so uh, in the book this is and again this is not something I expect to happen in 2021 obviously, um, but the argument of the book is that like actually (laughs) things would be better for Californians um, if Californians were were Represented at the national level to the degree that they should be, um, you know, we would hold the Senate right now. Um, we would hold the Senate right now just if we had D.C. and Puerto Rico as states, right? So we wouldn't have to we wouldn't have to lose sleep about whether uh, Brett Kavanaugh is going to get confirmed. Um, because we could we could just shoot the whole thing down. (laughs) Well,
0: yeah. And actually, I was going to mention you were very prophetic in your book. Uh, You said, quote, as soon as a Republican president is able to replace either Anthony Kennedy or one of the court's liberal justices, they will have their first originalist Supreme Court majority. And sadly, we're we're very nearly there. Um, You know, uh, while there are very few arrows in the Democrats quiver against this right now, um, you say that when they're in power, they should expand the number of Supreme Court justices and appoint liberal members. And this is pretty controversial for a number of reasons. Uh, And you address that in the book. Talk about how this wouldn't potentially lead to, say, like a tit for tat type increase or decrease every time power changes hands in D.C.
1: Sure. I mean, I arrived at this this idea um, because of Merrick Garland, you know, um, which is just uh, when I. Think of the name Merrick Garland like my blood starts to boil, you know, yeah. because we should have we should have a liberal majority on the court right now. Um, and what Republicans did was they they sort of trashed this informal understanding between the parties that when the lottery of a Supreme Court seat opens up, as it did when, when Scalia died, um, the president of the United States gets, gets to fill that seat. Um, and uh, when Republicans blocked that nomination, in my mind, they um, they didn't violate the Constitution. They were right. Um, that they they were not under no, no legal obligation to consider the nomination. That's that one of those loopholes him. that you talk about, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, the, the Constitution says you know that, that these nominations will have the, the advice and consent of the Senate, but it doesn't say how. It doesn't say like the word hearings don't, don't does not appear in the Constitution, right? <laughs> uh, but doesn't say it doesn't say a time frame. It doesn't say. What happens if the Senate is just like, no, I don't feel like it, you know, like, no, no secretary of state for you. (laughs) It doesn't say any of that stuff. Right. Um, And so Republicans very, very cleverly uh, exploited that loophole to hold the seat open um, and then miracled their way to this presidential victory and then have gotten to fill up Merrick Garland's seat. So in a similar way, the Constitution does not say anything about the number of justices on the Supreme Court. Um, Constitution actually has very little to say about the courts at all. Um, it's like, there shall be a Supreme Court, um, and then it doesn't it doesn't spell out the Supreme Court's powers, um, doesn't say anything about judicial review, which is how, how it's sort of developed over time. Um, and so, in my mind, sort of adding justices to the court is no different than, like, stealing the swing seat on the court um, by not... Uh, not doing what the Constitution clearly so, wants you to do, but doesn't obligate you to do.
0: So that's certainly how the Democrats could justify doing it. But like I like yeah. I say, th- there is the possibility that every time power changes hands in D.C., you might see uh, the same sort of moves. And and so, how do you keep that that seesaw from from happening?
1: Well, I mean, ideally, the ideal solution to this problem would not be to to add justices to the court. It would be to and I think this is what they have to do first, um, is to offer Republicans a truce um, in the form of a constitutional amendment. So there, there would be a way to eliminate lifetime tenure on the courts, um, have every justice serve 18 years and then step down, um, and then the president would get to appoint two justices for every four-year term. So in the first and third years of a president's four-year term, you get a Supreme Court pick. Uh, one person retires, you get a Supreme Court pick. Third year, another person retires, you get another pick. Um I think Democrats should offer this to Republicans. I think that they should also demand that Neil Gorsuch resign <laughs> as part of that truce. Um But I, I would, also, I mean, I honestly would be willing to accept it even without the Gorsuch thing, like if Republicans are like, okay, sure, let's end this. Then I think that we should end it. Um, and that I think is a reasonable thing to offer Republicans. I think it's a, it's a path out that has some support on the other side. Like uh, there was a, a column by, by Ross Duthat of the New York times the other day, endorsing this idea of Supreme court term limits. <laughs> Um, it's not really even a liberal idea. Uh, it's something that the right talked about a lot. Um, yeah, he's a,
0: uh, conservative columnist for the New York times. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it makes intuitive sense. Um, and I think it's something both parties could agree on. I think it's something Democrats have to offer. Um, and I think that the Republicans will probably say no. Um, and at that point, (laughs) you know, I would feel perfectly justified in saying like, well, okay, you know, you don't want a truce, then you're going to get this, you know? so Hence the fighting dirty part. And I Hence should I should term. point
0: out for listeners that uh, I, I think you're, you're five week old. You're a new dad. Your five week old son uh, is uh, is agreeing with you, I think, in the background. I there. think so. Yeah.
1: yeah, he's awake and he's uh, <laughs> he's excited about he's excited about the Supreme Court. Let me tell you.
0: <laughs> well, let's let's shift over and talk about the House, because as we were alluding to earlier, there are structural disadvantages for the Democrats there. Um, talk about some of your fixes here. You advocate doubling the size of the chamber again in the Constitution. No prohibition against that. But tell us how that could shift power for the Democrats.
1: Well, sure. There's a a couple things I want to do to the House, (laughs) one of which is to double it. Um, The Constitution actually calls for a constituent to legislator ratio of 30,000 to one, no more than 30,000 to one. Uh, And we are at 700,000 and change uh, for every single member of the House. That is the second worst constituent to legislator ratio in the entire world. Um, And I think it makes D.C. seem further than it really is to a lot of people. I think it makes it hard. Um, for legislators to connect with their constituents, um, and if we had more seats, it'd be uh, it'd be a bit harder to uh, for Republicans to gerrymander um, these urban areas where where Democrats are, are crowded into right now, as just a consequence of sort of patterns of migration and and living together. Um, that that's that gets us part of the way there. Um, so I think an instant doubling of the House to eight seventy um, is something that makes a lot of intrinsic sense. I can see you know since I wrote the book, I can see. The attacks on that, you know, like the Democrats want more, you know, they want more people in government, they want more people in Congress. And Congress is so hated um, that the idea of bringing 435 additional members of Congress into the world, uh, I could see how that would be a political problem. I think. And the, Nate
0: Silver might object, too, because he'd have to change the the name of his, his website, right?
1: Yeah, then it would – what would it be then?
0: I'm mad at math, uh, it'd so like
1: it would be more. 970 or something. <laughs> there you go, something like that, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the bigger problem with the House really is – Um, the way that the results of our elections don't necessarily um, reflect the number of votes that each party gets in the aggregate. So we run 435 separate elections for the House. Um, Winner take all could be a plurality. So in 2012, Democrats got more votes for the House of Representatives, um, but they lost the chamber to Republicans because of uh, the sort of partisan clustering in the cities um, and also because of gerrymandering. Um, And, uh, you know, Republicans uh, very cleverly gerrymandered the the house of representatives map and a lot of the state legislative maps too after 2010 because they control so many states completely like the state legislature and the governor um and so the the solution to that really is to move away from winner take all elections yeah so this
0: gets us back into ranked choice voting well so talk about that because i mean that as you mentioned earlier that's where you vote for candidates in order of preference and so explain how that would help the balance of power for democrats
1: Sure. Um, So there's a piece of legislation that's been introduced to the House. Um, It's going nowhere right now, (laughs) Uh, but it's called the Fair Representation Act, and it's drafted by a group called Fair Vote. Um, And what they would do, instead of having a single uh, member of Congress elected from each of the 435 districts, they would transform most of those districts into three or five member districts, um, all of whom would be elected at the same time using this procedure of ranked choice voting. Um, So you would walk into the ballot box, and instead of casting a single vote for one person for the House you would rank order the candidates on that ballot so that if your first choice is eliminated, your ballot goes to the second choice and so on. Um, that's a reform that would eliminate gerrymandering pretty much from the face of the earth because these larger districts would be ungerrymanderable in, in most places, hmm. uh, maybe a little bit on the margins, but um, you could also load nonpartisan districting <laughs> into this law, into this national law. Um, it would it would give third and fourth parties a real chance of winning power and it would avoid uh, a situation where one party really benefits from uh, from the district lines being drawn to benefit them. Um, you, you know, Republicans are benefiting from this right now. In, in uh, the earlier part of the 20th century, it was Democrats who actually got um, many more votes, uh, many more seats than their percentage of the national vote would have given, like in the 50s and 60s. This happened a lot. Um so really, in a way, it's unfair to both parties. It's currently most unfair to Democrats. And I think in the long term, I think American democracy would really benefit from having the results of the elections re- reflect the desires of the, of the majority of voters in this country. Um, and so right now, Democrats really are at a, they have a, a similar structural disadvantage in the House that they do in the Senate. Um, and that's why when we talk about November, everybody's like, When we see congressional uh, uh, generic ballot polling that's only like plus four or five for Democrats, we all freak out.
0: Because it has Um, to be at least eight to ten points in November, depending on who you're reading, uh, in order to take back the House just to overcome the structural disadvantages, right?
1: Right, right. I mean, it depends on who you ask. I mean, I think there's some people that think Democrats could take back the House with a a five-point national victory. Um, Some people think it's seven. Some people think it's ten. Uh, all of which is completely bananas, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Democrats won the, when we swept the House in 2006, um, you know, we're, we're talking about a five point victory, right? So uh, a result that delivered an overwhelming majority to the, to the Democrats in 2006 is now thought to maybe deliver a small majority of Republicans, which is crazy you know mm-hmm. uh, it's crazy that Republicans could lose this election by six points nationally and still hang on to the House of Representatives And so I, my fear is that we'll, you know we may win anyway in, in 2018 and 2020 and then we'll be in power and we'll be like you know whatever <laughs> um, let's redraw the districts ourselves when I think it'd be much wiser to address this structural problem in the same way that you address the structural problem in the Senate. You do it in the House at the same time. You bring D.C. and Puerto Rico in. You pass the Voting Rights Act so that when we – the next time that we have a a national election, after the next Democratic national victory, I want to be fighting on equal footing. Like I want to stop losing elections that we actually won. Um, I want to stop fighting at a massive disadvantage because uh, if you think about it in sports terms, you know, uh, if you start a football game down two touchdowns, you know, you'll win sometimes. (laughs) But you will lose more often than you win. Um, and I don't think that's fair. I think it has led to a long dominion of the Republican Party over this country, um, long after that party has lost majority support. Um, and yet they still rule us in ways that are extremely infuriating. That's why I, I would love if people read this book and, uh, and talked about some of these ideas, because that nothing about our current politics is like written in stone um, so deeply that we, we can't change it with some with some clever tactics
0: yeah and you talk about how primarily the way that republicans have gotten here is not through violating the constitution certainly but through violating the norms uh and that democrats are still clinging to a lot of those norms and it's time to uh shift thinking on that is the thesis of your book you know and i'm wondering do you worry about a backlash uh, to Democrats enacting all of these proposals. Um, because you say in your book that the reforms that you recommend aren't just about improving the chances for Democrats, but about improving representative democracy itself. And I happen to agree, uh, but a lot of people may not see it that way. And uh, congressional Republicans would certainly do their level best to fan the flames uh, with their base. What are your thoughts there?
1: I mean, I, of course, I worry about escalation. I mean, I, I think um We've been in a long period of tit for tat escalation. I think the problem has been that Republicans have been more willing, much more willing, um, to escalate seriously um, and to use their sort of uh, their ability to violate norms to maximize their power, at, sort of every given moment that they can. Whereas uh, I think Democrats have only done this when they, when they've really been pushed and their backs are against the wall. And I'm thinking of the elimination of um, the judicial filibuster in 2013 for the lower courts. Um, you know, well, you know, and actually, since there.
0: you since you bring that up, I mean, a lot of the tactics that you uh, that you talk about here require fighting. And, you know, a lot of what makes a Democrat a Democrat uh, is Democrats are often given to compromise. Uh, there was a, a recent Pew Research poll that showed consistently that a large majority of those on the left prefer compromise to fighting. I mean, is this do these tactics go against uh, what most Democrats are naturally inclined toward?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think that we're undergoing a change in that. I, I think that w- what's happened over the last twenty years is that Republicans have have been turned into a kind of continental European ideological political party, um, where the thing that unifies Republicans is a, is a set of ideologies, and their voters are demanding fealty to those, ideolo- that, those ideologies um, at all times. You know, um, the particular ideologies can be changed by people at the top, as we see with Donald Trump. Um, but, but, the, but the Republican Party is very unified uh, around a small set of, of ideological ideas, um, and they're willing to go to bat for it. And um, they've been getting rid of the, the moderates through primaries for, for a long time, so that if you look at the sort of voting scores of members of Congress, um, uh, the Republican Party has moved very far off to the right over the last 20 years, um, whereas the Democrats have become, say, I would say, marginally more progressive. Um, and so I think Republicans are about... Five or six years ahead of Democrats in terms of being willing to act like a rigid sort of parliamentary block in the way that I would like to see Democrats acting now. Um, but I also think that if I had to guess, I'd say the next batch of data that we have about voting in Congress is going to show that Democrats are also moving to the left pretty sharply right now. Um, and so I think that this I think that this disjuncture in the polling, where Democrats say like I'd like I'd like compromise more than Republicans do. I have a prediction that that will disappear um, yeah. within another year or two of the Trump administration.
0: Well, uh, yeah, because- and I, I think you're probably starting to see that erode now uh, already. Certainly from the tenor of the conversation that I see on you know, on social media, particularly within indivisible groups, um, it, it very much is a fighting spirit. You know, I'll just ask you in closing, do you worry at all about making these tactics public uh, to, say, transmit to the opposition what the Democrats might do, or is The idea to build public acceptance and enthusiasm around these ideas
1: yeah i mean you know i tried calling chuck and nancy myself but they didn't listen so (laughs) i had to write a book um you know some of these ideas are pretty are a little bit off the wall and i think that they they require a, a project um in other words, many years of democratic partisans asking the representatives to change the way that we vote for the house you know some of them I hope are going to happen instantly the next time we get out of power like if we don't do voting rights and we don't do DC and Puerto Rico in the first two months of the next democratic administration like I quit you know <laughs> um, some of some of this other stuff you know it's going to require some persuasion um and so but I'm not super worried about getting this away I mean people when, when I when I wrote a couple of pieces about, court packing. Um, people were like, aren't you afraid that Republicans are going to see this and then do it? And I'm like, Republicans know that they can do this. Trust me. They know, um, mm-hmm. everybody knows it's, it's, uh, it's just something that we haven't done because we've never gotten to this point before. Um, and I, I guess my point is that we're at that point. Um, we can't push our way out of it. And, uh, I think that we need to think seriously about doing some of these things. I don't think Republicans are going to stop escalating, um, until they kind of feel what it's like to have a yeah.
0: Well, I will just uh, end by recommending your book uh, that people uh, pick it up. I will mention that it's actually a very funny read, um, which is good because the subject matter is so dark. Um, I'll just quote one line that I liked in particular. You, you said uh, Trump's uh, inaugural speech, quote, sounded like Ernest Hemingway's suicide note as interpreted by 4chan. So very well done, sir. Uh, the book is It's Time to Fight Dirty, available from Melville House Publishing. David Ferris, thank you so much for your time.
1: Yeah, Thanks for having me on the set. This was fun
0: and that will wrap up this week's show for links to everything that we talk about here on the show and for our calendar of events you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org you can also subscribe to the show there please keep the correspondences coming everybody I love it the address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the twitter handle is at indivisiblepod the Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc thank you again to my guest David Ferris thanks also to Jim Austin and Aaron Albanese special thanks to Alexandra Premiani and as always My thanks to you for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.